a quick announcement before the episode. Dear underreported listeners, you haven't heard from us in a while, and last we posted, a special episode would be released in regards to the Connecticut expansion pipeline. That episode is forthcoming. In the meantime, check out our new episode, and a warning to any younger listeners, the following contains some profanity. In this group, that, that, that to our knowledge, that's in coming to Boston Saturday is not the same group that was in Virginia last weekend. I mean, they might have the same same similar name to it. Come on, proud boys! We will not lay down and let these people take our country from us. They're trying to destroy Western civilization. And to do that, they're going after whites. When you look at these crowds, and I don't know if Doug has these uh, images in front of him, but... In some ways, these, as we heard from Steve Harrigan, the Antifa and the sort of angry, violent Black Lives Matters groups, it doesn't appear as though the police are trying to protect any protesters. It seems as though the protesters have now turned on the police. There was about 200 people within that crowd that were there to, to start trouble. On Saturday, August 19th, in Boston, Massachusetts, one week after the KKK, neo-Nazis, and the quote-unquote alt-right marched into Charlottesville, Virginia, 40,000 protesters took to the streets of Boston to stand up against white supremacy. That same day, an unknown number of Boston and state police descended upon those protesters. The corporate and local media, the mayor, and police commissioner Evans claimed the day was a success. The men and women of, of our department and all the other agencies who helped us perform really well. You know, it, it was a long day, it was a hot day, uh, and you know, the separation worked well. Uh, when we went to move them out, there was a little bit of a confrontation. Uh, I think you've seen uh, public order platoons come out. That was the plan. As you, as you know, I was hoping we wouldn't have to bring them out, but I thought they did a good job moving that crowd. The 50 or so quote-unquote free speech rally attendees got out safely, and those that were arrested were, to quote Donald Trump, just police agitators. The truth is, most of the 33 people arrested were caught up in the dragnet of the police state. I'm Corey Feener, and this is Underreported. I have received hate mail. I hope you get 10 years in jail. Uh, I get called a douchebag. I hope you get 10 years. That kind of, it, it made me laugh because literally none of my charges carry a 10 year sentence, not even combined. Like, <laughs> which I found hilarious. I'm like, do you even know why I was arrested in the first place? Kimberly Carlisle was arrested for disorderly conduct, disturbing a public assembly and resisting arrest. So walk me through your arrest. All that we have for visual imagery, right, is like this this kind of freeze frame from a video seconds beforehand. And you can see how small you are. I'm so tiny. <laughs> Kimberly is 4'10 and 84 pounds. She is 39 years old. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm really small. Yeah, I couldn't understand why me. I was silent. You know, people around me were chanting and yelling and there were all sorts of chants going on and I'm just kind of there silent like standing there sometimes with an arm raised in the air and sometimes you know just holding my things looking like looking on trying to watch behavior. My name is Carl Williams and I'm an attorney with the American Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. The question is did this person 
commit disorderly conduct. Disorderly conduct is behavior that would tend to, I always say that simple way to understand it is, is behavior that would make reasonable people think that you are about to start a fight or to hurt someone. However, police have expanded that. The legislature is the one that's supposed to expand or contract it, not the police, have to use to cover every, everything, right? To cover way too many things. I don't recall anybody saying anything beforehand. Like a police officer had come through, said move back. So I just kind of like moved back as far as I could because there was a lot of pressure like coming forward with the crowd. I'm very light. So I don't have a lot of, you know, leverage to be pushing back. Police were coming through their motorcycles. You know, they'd rev the engine and move forward real quick. And all of a sudden the police officer grabbed my arm, yanked me down and, you know, arrested me, put me down on the ground. It was quick, but I felt somebody kneeling, like kneeling on me, like on my legs, and like somebody was like pushing on my body, like on my back, somebody was pushing. And then the one police officer that had grabbed me had my arm all the way up to where like my fingers were touching my, like touching my shoulder blades. Then he had bent my wrist down to where my fingers were actually like touching my arm. And I believe he was only holding that one arm and my hand down against my wrist with one hand. I have, a, I have Noonan syndrome, so with Noonan syndrome you can have a lot of joint issues. I have low muscle tone, some uh, ligament issues. So things are kind of loose in my joints anyway. My shoulder is still like, you know, I still got like a clicking that's happening in there, but that's not, it'll go away. It usually happens when I hyperextend, which is what he did. He had hyperextended it. So kind of also tried at one point to move into it in hopes that maybe they would, it would shift their body weight to where he wasn't pulling as much, because it really hurt. But when I said, ow, 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 because he was hurting me, he pulled even harder to where I could feel my wrist almost touching my shoulder blade. And that's way far up. I was really scared he was gonna rip it out. So I was yelling at them that I have disabilities. They weren't hearing it. So then when they like picked me up and got me on my feet, I was yelling to people in the crowd. I'm a person with disabilities, just so that's, you know, maybe somebody got it on video or something like that. to get a little information, a little background on kind of crowd arrest situations. At what point is it okay for officers to arrest members of the crowd and are they supposed to give a notification that they might be doing that? So that's what, I can't answer that question. They can't, actually. The thing that you said, it's like, what point is it okay for people to arrest people? It's not. You can't arrest just arrest people. You have to arrest people when you have probable cause to believe they committed a crime. Standing in a street, or walking on a sidewalk or shouting a slogan, those things are not crimes and they, they cannot be crimes. Um, however, if you are trespassing, there's a certain set of things that that is, that is a crime. If you are committing the crime of uh, disorderly conduct, that, that's a crime. If you're committing the crime of disturbing the peace, that's a crime. Just not doing something that a police officer says to do there's no statute in Massachusetts that says you can be arrested and put in prison for, like, quote, not doing a thing that a police officer tells you to do, close quote. That's not, there's no such crime as that that I'm, there's no such statute that makes that against the law. I don't see anything I did that would have warranted even being arrested in the first place, let alone, 
you know, inflicting physical harm or screaming at me. Or, the screaming stop resisting really bothered me. Because now I like, you see those videos online where you hear the person yelling, I'm not resisting. They're not resisting. You know, it's either because they're being hurt and they're trying to like ease the pain. I know for sure I was not trying to get up because that's when they start pulling out weapons, you know, mace, tasers, whatever. Also, heart defects, Noonan syndrome. <laughs> so I, I already have like kind of an irregular heartbeat and I have, um, I have a couple murmurs, uh, a couple other things. So I, I worry about being tased. Um, this police officer just took me and put me in the front seat of his car or in his SUV and just, you know, said, take her to A1 and then kind of shut the door. The whole back was full of stuff, so I just got thrown in the front seat. And, but there was stuff on the front seat behind me. There was like something plastic I was leaning into or metal or something. I don't, I don't know what was behind me, I couldn't see. So I was on pretty much like the very edge of the seat. So close to the dash, if the airbag deployed, I could have easily died. I'm not supposed to be in, sitting in front of an airbag anyway. The ones that have the automatic shut off, when I sit in the passenger side, I'm so little they shut off. You weren't seatbelted in, you were on the edge of the seat. Oh no, he was holding my neck. That was my seatbelt. It was his hand around the back of my neck, which almost reached out like to the front because my neck is skinny. Things that were behind me, I kept bumping into those. And like at one point, he didn't have his hand on my neck. Which I think was scarier than having the hand on my neck, was not having the hand on my neck. Because I was like, oh my goodness, he's going to hit the brakes and I'm going through the windshield. Yeah. Handcuffs and all. The battle of words is being fought by a gun and a nightstick. While the battle for souls is being won by a man with ambition. And every time we create something we can take pride in Some man with a microphone claims it was his own invention Push me on you. Don't poke me with that. I did step back. He pushed me on top of you. Don't hit me with that. My name is Jay Kelly. I ain't here to bother you. I want to know why y'all are protecting these fascists, though. Look me in the eye and tell me you're on the right side protecting these fascists. Honestly, you're a Boston police officer. I'm a Boston resident. How are you out here protecting me from hate speech? You're not. You're protecting these fascists. It wasn't a matter of, yes, we're going to go. It was a matter of, we have to go, and it wasn't really a choice at that point. Jay Kelly, an activist and a Muslim American of Irish descent, and his wife Aisha, of Pakistani descent, were at the common on that day. I knew the kind of rhetoric they were spouting. To go and see the first couple where there wasn't a ton of people on the counter side. And then with everything that went on in Charlottesville, and a, a lot of these men, you know, rub elbows with the same groups that were in Charlottesville. According to the Boston Herald, the national director of the KKK, Thomas Robb, stated that members of the Massachusetts chapter would be in attendance. Whether they were there that Saturday is uncertain after the fact. And some of the speakers that were in Boston have previously been to the free speech rallies in Boston. 
I already knew what they had been saying, and they spout anti-Muslim rhetoric, things like that. But at the last one, um, Kyle Chapman, the base stick man, he was speaking about how communists want to, you know, destroy white people and build on the ashes of America, you know, and that white people were in, under threat. And we will not lay down and let these people take our country from us. They're trying to destroy Western civilization. And to do that, they're going after whites. For whatever reason, some of these people didn't come. Uh, whether they didn't agree with speaking after Charlottesville that quickly, these were speakers that were on the flyer. You know, the person said, oh, well, Mayor Walsh is branding us as Nazi. People are unhinged. It's not safe for us. They can feel that way, you know, but if they want to rub elbows with white nationalists and white supremacists, then that's the treatment you're going to get. Speak on a different rally. The guy Joe Biggs from Texas, I mean, he had AMA on Reddit like just days before, you know, so there's a flyer. I downloaded it off of his Twitter and in one arm he's got a assault rifle and on the other arm he's got the barbed wire baseball bat from The Walking Dead and it says Trump on it. And Kyle Chapman, like he's the quote-unquote leader of the Alt Knights, which is the military wing of the Proud Boys. So it's it's actual like paramilitary language that they use. He was charged the Thursday before the rally. He was charged in California for assault with a weapon. He assaulted somebody at a protest. It was on the national news, and his name was on the flyer. And the police said, "We have no idea who's coming." Driving through Trump's America was the first time I felt scared When I realized I was hated by some people they got there Cause I can pass for straight and no one knows that I'm a Jew And I don't know if I'm lucky or a coward or what to do I just know when immigrants are under attack What do you do? You stand up, fight back When women's rights are under attack What do you do? You stand up, fight back When Muslims are under attack what do you do? You stand up, fight back. Yeah, what do you do? You stand up, fight back. What do you do? You stand up, fight back. Some of the officers in the police line came out with faulty equipment. There was one officer, he came out and the visor on his helmet was broken and it wasn't attached to the helmet in the center, so it was falling down and laying on his throat, mm -hmm. you know, and his eyes were looking out uh, over the plastic. and. There was at least twice where I pointed this guy out and I said, hey, that's not safe. Like, go and get the thing fixed. You should go over there and fix that. That ain't safe. Yeah. Go ahead, go back there. Let this man stand up. That ain't safe. Yeah, go fix your visor, man. That ain't safe. See? We ain't out here to hurt y'all. It wasn't too, too long. And then they switched out to the, what they were calling the civil disturbance platoon or civil order platoon, and that was the guys in you know, the black SWAT outfits, pads, and, and clubs. You can stop protecting these bigots right now. You got these guys in militarized helmets and gear, you're right here because we're peaceful people out here, standing, for, standing against hate. How am I supposed to go back to my mosque and tell people that I didn't try and protect them? And you guys are the ones that are supposed to protect the worshippers of my mosque. They're good citizens of the Commonwealth, and you're standing here up for hate speech. I was arrested on Boylston Street, uh, my wife and I, and then uh, another gentleman were arrested immediately upon the police uh, trying to clear the street. 
probably the prior like 15, 20 minutes, I was interacting with the police almost from the time I arrived. I was asking the police, you know, direct questions to specific officers like, well, what are you going to tell your kids you did today? Questions like that, I was morally shaming them. You know, I thought it was bullshit. They were, they were standing there protecting hate speech and that's what they were doing. Even when the new riot police came in, I was still directing the same questions to them. Uh, I was citing personal experience, people uh, in my family that are fearful of going on the T, you know, because they're Muslim. Just before I was arrested, one of the chants that went up through the crowd was make them walk. At that point, people were more upset that the police were facilitating them in leaving. I didn't see or hear like any talk of violence against them, you know, not like we're going to effing kill you or fuck you, we're going to beat you. None of that. There was no violence towards the police. Obviously, what I was saying wasn't being antagonistic to them or they would have arrested me far sooner. Um, so I don't think I was being antagonistic or goading other people into action against the police. Nobody was talking about taking any physical action against the speakers or the police. And at that point, the officers that were standing there, the riot police were obviously, you know, a little bit more stern looking. They were becoming closer to people and, you know, uh, not really hitting people with their sticks, but making it known that they, they had a stick. You all should be ashamed of yourselves. You got these men gonna put these sticks in our faces because we're standing up to hate. Just before I was arrested, one of the officers came to me and said, you're gonna have to get out of the street. I said, all right, you know, and you say to move, we'll move. You know, and he said, well, you're the face of the crowd. You gotta get out of the street. Previous to that, uh, the police line had moved a couple times and, you know, I complied and moved down the street. They didn't try and move us. One of the, the officer that told me to get out of the street grabbed me, ended up pulling me to the ground in the process. There was another officer that hit myself and my dad with a baton. I was hit on the, on the face, on the chest and on the arm. Uh, my dad was hit in the chest from some video that I saw after the fact. My dad went flying down the street. Uh, they knocked him on his ass, basically. My wife was standing next to me. She just basically stood between myself and the riot officer. And then when the cop dove for my arm, he ended up you know, pushing her down. She ended up trying to regain her balance. And in the process, all, you know, everybody went to the ground. I had a cop with his elbow in my neck, you know, telling me to stop resisting, stop resisting. At one point in the video, I'm seen literally like waving my hand, you know, because they were yelling at me to give me, give me your hand. And I was like, well, take it, you know? So I had one of them pulling on one part of my body and the other one, you know, striking me on a different part because they basically played pinata with me. You know, one of them was pulling my arm and the other one would jab me in the neck with his elbow and tell me to stop resisting. And he was responding to the other officer pulling on my arm. Uh, my wife was knocked off balance and dragged to the ground. She ended up getting to her hands and knees. And at that point, one of the officers that was there grabbed her by the backpack and dragged her across the street. And in the process, they partially disrobed her. Uh, by dragging her across the street with her backpack, she was wearing like yoga pants and they were pulled off. And I thought about my community And I thought about how we're strong And I thought, all right, then fuck it Let's prove the fascist bastards wrong 
When immigrants are under attack, what do we do? We stand up, fight back. When women's rights are under attack, what do we do? We stand up, fight back. When Muslims are under attack... Both Jay and Kimberly were never told at any point on that day what charges were against them and why they were arrested. Most people, including those interviewed here, found out their charges when the Boston Police Department posted them online and news outlets picked up the list, spreading it to the masses. I didn't find out anything. When I got to the station, I, they, I gave them my information. I was nice about everything. I tried to be so nice about everything. You make them mad and then they get worse. Because I kept demanding to know why I was there. Oh, well, you'll find out when the, when the cop that arrests you got here. Well, do you even know who that guy is? The guy at the booking at C6 in South Boston had asked why, you know, why I was arrested. You know, he didn't know, and so he was kind of perturbed, and he's like, you know, why the, why the hell doesn't anybody know why they're being arrested today? So I was like, oh, so this is a problem today. You know, I, I think I, would, I was already so overstimulated by the being arrested, being touched, you know, being hurt, then having my neck consistently held throughout the car, the car ride. I think I was so overstimulated by that point. Like at one point I, I cried because I was just so mad and overstimulated and that's my release. If I don't cry, like, I really start getting mad. And then, I get and then I get combative and then, well, no, it's more the autism, I think. Jay and Kimberly both felt called to be there that day. Kimberly's goddaughter is black and she struggles with the world that awaits her. My allegiance lies with humanity. You know, my allegiance lies with people, the planet as a whole. That's where my priority is. Like, everybody is my priority. I would have been there anyway, I'm certain of it. Having, you know, my godchildren in my life, it's really not fair that they don't have the same opportunities as my children just because the color of their skin. Sorry. No, it's okay. You know, the one thing that I keep coming back to with my wife is like, I did grow up in a very white privilege -y place. Uh, I'm Irish and I'm from Boston. Like the, the status quo is, you know, people who look like me and I'm surrounded by and have all these quote unquote inherent rights that a lot of people don't get because of their skin color or their sexual orientation or their religion. You know, I'm Muslim, nobody knows that unless I tell them. They're not gonna look at me and think I'm a Muslim. You know, I just look like some Irish guy from Boston. The thing is that I, I've been coming back to continually since Trump was elected is that people get really pissed off when you try and take their rights away. Two people out of 33. Who knows who else arrested was caught in the dragnet of the Boston Police Department. Public record documents show that what those arrested were given on their first day in court was a public narrative summary. No individuals listed on the summary other than a lone person who while in a holding cell smeared feces on the wall. This person had nothing to do with Jay or Kimberly's arrest, prompting important questions as to why their name is being shared with the defendants and why it is relevant to each of their cases. The narrative summary quite interestingly, talks about alleged events after Jay's arrest. Events that he had no part in. Not once does it list Jay or Kimberly by name, mention the location they were arrested at, 
or discuss specifically what crimes they were accused of. Despite the clear lack of appropriate paperwork, there are other concerns over how the rally and march were treated by the Boston police. Before the day even began, the commissioner promised a soft approach. We've learned how to separate crowds and, and keep different factions apart, e even with the Black Lives Matter. And, you know, we have a very soft approach. We never have the helmets, the sticks, and we engage in dialogue. So I'm hoping, you know, we won't have any issues on set. The officers dressed in black SWAT uniforms, who had no visible badge numbers, and were brandishing wooden batons, gave a different impression than the one promised by Commissioner Evans. Boston is a city that has been reported to disproportionately engage in racially motivated stop-and-frisk searches against black people, according to a 2015 report by the ACLU. The actions of the Boston police that day were right in line with that study, with many protesters questioning who they were protecting. And the police are wrong, and they know they're wrong. Like, it started out with, the counter-protesters turned against the police. That is absolutely not what happened. At first, a small group of protesters, it wasn't like an unmanageable crowd, tried to deter the police officers from giving the alt-right people an escort. Completely understandable. Their tax dollars are paying for that. You know, these people wanted to hold the rally. What makes them think they have a right to a police escort? Nobody was hurting them. having said that they had a plan and it was going to be a soft approach and things like that. And then after the fact saying, you know, it was a success or our plan went just how we wanted it to go, you know. If the plan is to attack black people in the streets, then they achieve their goal. Yeah. I didn't see any type of plan where the police wanted to de-escalate with anybody. You know, the police demanded that you do something and if you didn't do it, they hit you with a stick. And then everybody's criticized for being anti-police. But the way I see it, the police didn't choose to de-escalate with 40,000 people. You know, they chose to push people where they chose to push them. They didn't tell anybody where to go. You know, they didn't say, get out of the street, go this way. They just said, move, do what we tell you. I think these people had, have every right in the world to stand out there and voice their opinion. My name is Superintendent Ridge of the Boston Police Department. We are asking you to move to the side and open the street up. Please move to the side and open the street. As to the police plan, their, their plan to even get any of these people into the venue, if you will, there was no plan that was, that was visible. Was people making their way through a crowd of thousands of people with whatever political slogans they had on them. And, you know, obviously there was going to be negative interactions on one side or the other. And the police didn't provide any way for these people to, like, turn themselves in to be able to attend the rally. You basically had to push your way to the, the fence, it looked like, and jump over the fence, hopefully with police protection is what they're assuming. I'm no police tactician, but their plan to bring these people out afterwards was the probably the worst plan they could have come up with. They brought them down a very narrow alleyway next to the old burial ground in the common right on Boylston Street. It was the, there's a gate directly across from the Emerson Colonial Theater. And they had police wagons that they brought in to bring these people out in and drop them off somewhere else. Not a great plan. There was construction on that street. There was scaffolding. There was jersey barriers in the street. Uh, the EMS command center was there parked on, on Boylston Street. So one of the smaller streets abutting the common was the point where they chose to bring these people out. And they knew that there was going to be, 
you know, some type of counter protest. It's not like it's not like it was a mystery where they were going. You know, they did it in a wide open space that they made wide open and then they chose to bring them out that way. If they were going to take them out on wagons and, and, and have an alleyway to remove them in, they could have had that same thing set up to go to Tremont Street. The garage is also a uh, very easy and clandestine option. Like, they could walk them down into those stairs, and before anybody knew it, they could drive out onto uh, Charles Street out the exit, and they would be halfway across the city before anyone realized they weren't popping back out that same door. And then Boylston Street uh, pretty quickly filled with people because it was apparent that that's you know, where they were trying to bring these speakers through. People were obviously trying to interact with them and protest the, just their very presence. But the police planned to bring them through there or to manage anybody that came to oppose them was basically non-existent at the start. The Boston Police Department has not returned multiple requests for comment. Stripped of their purpose, their posture, their grandeur and power. So if got ideas you got my attention I was out there photographing for Dig Boston that day and I you know I noticed obviously the the um, the barricades and no press were allowed in the bandstand area and when press talked to the police asked if they could go in to report on what was happening um, the police said that no media were allowed so I, I'm, I'm wondering if that is a huge infringement. I think it's actually worse than what you're saying. Yeah. I think in some cases they asked the, I'm going to call it, I'm making quote marks, but the quote unquote free speech people, if, like, can this person come in? Can this group? Some people were, were allowed in, and it was sort of, uh, we would say that that's a view. I mean, my guess would be that that might be viewpoint discrimination to say like this person can't come in, this person cannot come in. And especially when it's media, that is a huge concern. The folks that actually were attending the free speech rally and those organizers, you know, they said uh, we were sectioned off, you know, media was not even allowed in there and media, m members of the media have also confirmed this. But there was journalists that were, you know, they were physically stating, we are media, here's my credentials, we want to go in and, it's, you know, hear what they're saying. And the police said no. And then the free speech folks, they said that, you know, it didn't matter what they said, nobody could hear them. And that was, they felt an infringement on their rights and their free speech. I agree with them. I think the police hindered their, their ability to pass on their message. Fuck what they're saying. But, you know, the police shouldn't be in a position where they're dictating who gets to say what. Definitely fuck what they were saying, but I think the police put them in a position where they did hinder their ability to hold a rally, which the city gave a permit for. And the protections on freedom of speech in this country only apply to the government. The government cannot hinder your freedom of speech. I think they did that. If you come out to the Boston Common and start spouting some bullshit that does not protect you from your neighbor, your neighbor can think you're an asshole and come and yell at you for it. That's what happened. And literally thousands of our neighbors came out to say this isn't right and they were responding. There are still many questions about whose free speech was being protected or hindered by both the local government and its institutions. Despite coming out and stating his stance against hate speech, Mayor Walsh granted the organizers of the free speech rally a permit. Some have argued his denial of that permit would have set a bad precedent. Let's talk about dangerous precedents. They allowed this rally to go on. They didn't challenge the permit at all. 
the police, they knew it was a public order concern. The woman that was murdered in Charlottesville less than seven days before, you know, this conversation became very loud in the city by Tuesday. You know, the mayor had stepped forward and said things on, on the record by Tuesday, you know, Wednesday and then Thursday they had a press conference. The freedom rally that happens on the Boston Common every year, this year is their 28th year. It's a marijuana rally. They've been advocating for legal marijuana in Boston and Massachusetts. These are statewide organizations that have this rally. It's every September. They've had it for 28 years. The city every year denies their permit. Just out of pocket. They apply for a permit, denied. And every year for the last 27, they've gone to court and they've got an injunction. And in, even in the last few years, they've gotten this injunction in the last week before the event. For the mayor, was it politically risky for him to deny the free speech rally permit, knowing full well the courts would have granted the permit anyway? What message does it send for Walsh to deny a cannabis freedom rally that has been happening for decades in Boston, but allow a quote-unquote free speech rally with Proud Boys and KKK members to go forward? What does that say to the residents of color in Boston? We need to have a talk about race. We need to talk about this. This is not something like people keep avoiding the talk, especially white people keep avoiding the talk, or they keep saying really, pardon me for saying this, they keep saying really stupid shit. <laughs> that it's like, it's just, okay, you really don't get, you're not understanding, you don't get it, you know? So it, it needs to be talked about. You're absolutely right, it does. There's huge sections of the community, majority white people, I mean, minorities don't feel this way from my understanding. But there's a lot of white people that say, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, you don't have to worry about getting arrested. Or no, police aren't gonna beat you if you just listen to what they say. But they can yell whatever arbitrary thing they want at you. And if you don't agree with them, they'll hit you with a stick. You know, and that's what, that's what ends up happening. And, and the spin is, is that, well, you must've been doing something wrong. Uh, they wouldn't have pushed you if you weren't standing in the wrong spot. If you moved when they said to move, they wouldn't push you. It's time. We can't keep doing this where we're just compliant to the government. We can't keep doing this where we're complacent to society and in turn being complicit to racism. It's unacceptable. Any type of prejudice, we can't be complicit. You know, it's time that we take to the streets. It's time that we get angry. We can. We have that right and we just don't use it enough. This episode of Underreported was produced by Dick Boston, the Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, and me, your host, Corey Feener. Music for the episode generously provided by Peter Bufano, Nathan Lee, and Long is the Walk. Theme song by Dave Robertson. Special thanks to Carl Williams of the ACLU of Massachusetts, Jay Kelly, and Kimberly Carlisle. Have a look at our website for links, photos from the protest, and resources discussed in this episode. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review us, and share the podcast. Thanks for listening. We were dancing on a Saturday It was a fine weekend to celebrate We'd made it through the winter Without any place to stay Salute one finger to the boys in blue Should've known what they were gonna do Should've seen that long arm coming down Split normal in two Now I know I will never be normal I'll never be normal I'll never be normal I will never be normal I'll never be normal I'll never be normal